Hi everyone, welcome. This is the first podcast that we are recording from our new studio here in the City of London. So, welcome, I hope you enjoy it. Today's guest is uh, Antoine Vernet from uh, UCL, the Bartlett School of Sustainable Construction, who, and this conversation today is all going to be about AI, hybrid working, and organisational design and the interaction of those topics. So it's really, really relevant, it's really interesting, really hope you enjoy it. Antoine, thanks very much for coming in to see us today and uh, appear on our podcast. Can you just give our viewers a sort of a brief history about where you've come from and what you're currently doing? Yeah, no problem. Well, thank you for having me first. And um, so I'm Antoine Vernet. I'm an associate professor at uh, UCL in the School of um, Sustainable Construction in the Bartlett, uh, which is the faculty of the built environment. I'm a management scholar and I do mostly research around organizational design and social networks, um, which has um, taken me originally from being a sociologist to being um, more and more interested in how we can design organization so they perform better by thinking both of the formal structure of the organization, but also of the informal relationship between the people who are doing the work within that organization. As I I know this topic was really uh, pioneered at UCL, I think it's going back to the early 2000s. Um, Yes, so there's been, before I I arrived at UCL a few years ago, there were uh, already uh, people within my department uh, doing a lot of work around networks in the construction industry and specifically on how informal networks could help or hinder um, the completion of construction projects. That's right. So let's just get into the meat and potatoes of the discussion. And for our vegan viewers, that would be potatoes and potatoes. I use that gag every week. Um, so let's just... And the other thing that you that reminded me of you, Antoine, was that uh, you've started recording your own podcast series with a, a focus on AI and how it's impacting everyday life and also academic life. Yeah, so I think it's generous of you to to call it a podcast. I I record uh, videos um, less regularly than I would like, um, and I admire the fact that you're able to do it with such regularity. Um, and that's what I am aiming for in time, but um, it takes time getting there. The, um, the main focus on, of those videos is talking about the importance of data literacy to make sense of the, wor- the world around us uh, and what that, um, what that means and how that ties into AI is, is thinking about what's happening in, uh, in organizations, but also in society and what technological technological change is doing to um, the way we work, the way we interact with each other, and trying to decipher that um, using, whenever it's available, using data 
Um, and, and also, I do a little bit of debunking um, claims that are made with data that are uh, possibly less robust than we would like them to be. Yeah, I'd, I've, I'll share some of your cynicism. Uh, and I know on one of your particular videos, you've, you've called out some cynic once or twice for making, I guess, unsubstantiated claims or claims which the data that you've got doesn't, doesn't, doesn't fit with that. Yeah, I think, I mean, one, one thing I would say to be a bit generous to, to people that sometimes um, I sometimes, sometimes single out as making claims that are unsubstantiated is that if you're someone like Simon Sinek and you spend a lot of time on podcasts or on, um, on TV, um, it's pretty difficult to never say something that is not uh, well substantiated, especially when you're in conversation with um, with journalists that are trying to get you to say something interesting and pushing you a bit beyond what um, you know is comfortable territory. I can understand that he has to say something interesting, doesn't he? To just to keep the brand going. Yeah, I yeah. think. And it's easy to fall into that trap. So yeah, we'll give him some slack. I think we sh we it's reasonable to give people some slack, and but it's also reasonable to. Um, especially in a, in a world, and we, we're going to get to that when we talk about generative AI, right? One of the things that generative AI makes really easy to do is producing um, misinformation and creating claims that are possibly uh, twisting the, the reality in a way that allows you to uh, push forward whatever message you want to push forward. Uh, and in a world like that, critical thinking and the ability to realize that the claim is less um, solid than maybe we would like it to be is an important skill. Yeah, I would, I know with experiments that we've been doing or with ChatGPT and others that they, if you ask it a question, if it gives you an answer, it always, nearly always comes across as being very authoritative. And if you ask it a question about something you know a lot about, sometimes it's wrong, and sometimes it's completely wrong, which is very worrying because it it's, comes out as if it was gospel. But I think, I mean, you're putting your finger on something that's really important, which is the advent of generative AI doesn't make experts uh, irrelevant because essentially you still need someone with domain expertise to realize when the AI is hallucinating something that doesn't really exist. And because it's always answering in a way that's fairly authoritative, if you don't know very much about a topic, it feels like it, it could be a correct answer. Uh, and without that domain expertise, you, um, you lose that, um, that ability to say, okay, this part's good, this part's less good. And I think, um, well, that leads to two things. The first is domain expertise remains e extremely important with, um, in order to work with generative AI and to really benefit from the, the type of assistance you can get from large language models like um, ChatGPT. You need that domain expertise. Um, and possibly you can still benefit from um, using a large language model when you have a bit of expertise but not 
a massive amount of expertise, but you will be really struggling to use it productively on a domain where you have no expertise whatsoever. Yeah, I think that's um, yeah, points well made because it, it, it people are, people were telling me stuff that they've been told on ChatGPT as if it was the truth, and often I don't I don't understand how it can tell lies. I don't understand how that what happens. Well, I think I mean one way to think about it, and I'm not claiming I'm a technical expert on on the way large language model works. But the model doesn't reason in the way we do, and it doesn't have a knowledge base in the way we do. It's a, a system that predicts what's the likely next word based on a certain amount of previous words that are, uh, that are there. I mean, there's other parts of the system, but essentially it's a next token prediction system. What that means is that even though we, call, we talk about hallucinations as... Um, times where this, the system gets it wrong. That's not really true. The whole thing is an hallucination. Every answer it's giving you is an hallucination. What's so amazing and so surprising about it is that such a high proportion of the time, that hallucination is actually something that, that's correct and that's factual. But, um, but then there's, the, the system doesn't differentiate between the time where it's not hallucinating and the times it's hallucinating. It's just doing its thing um, and it just so happened that the way they're trained the very very large majority of the of the time it gives you an answer that's roughly correct or sometimes very very good um, on a specific topic yeah because I, I i saw a i saw a video made by the or the alan turing series of lectures and some super duper professor of ai from oxford and put some questions in, which were reasoning questions around, you know, what is, if Jack's got three apples and this and that, how many, and he gave the correct answer. And he could not tell you how it got the correct answer. But also, then he asked another obvious question and he got it wrong. Yeah, so another thing that's difficult with, with, the, with those systems is that, well, first they change very fast at the moment. So, um, if you try something and the system gets it wrong, it's tempting to conclude that the system cannot do that kind of reasoning. But in fact, it could in the next iteration. And also it's possible that there's a better way to prompt the system to get the right answer. Um, so um, a, a, a while ago, there were, there were um, I remember a conversation uh, on LinkedIn with people saying, look, here's a small brain teaser and AI gets it wrong. And in fact, um, a few people tried that brain teaser and by trying an, a high, you know, three or four different ways to approach it, to get the system to approach the problem differently, um, it was able to solve it. So it's very hard to conclude that it cannot do something. Um, and because the system change so rapidly and there's more and more um, large language models of high quality that arrive on the market regularly yes. um, we don't know where we'll end up right we've we've not exited that phase of rapid acceleration uh, even though we could there's a possibility that's that that's already kind of happening because for example uh, gpt4 
was released last year and it's been the best performing model for uh, 10 months now, which is, um, which is possibly a sign that it's not that easy to get to the next level. I did, I sub- In terms of getting to the next level, is it that it's got to learn more words? Because they've got 500 billion words have gone into it. Or is it that they need another filter or is how, how do these iterations so i think that's work? i mean that's that's a very good question and i i'm not sure i have a, a definitive answer but it's definitely a, a debate that i see between between experts um, between people who think that scale is going to solve it and it's true that from the different uh, iteration of uh, the models released by OpenAI, from gpt1 gpt2 gpt3 etc the, the main difference between those models seemed to have been scale, where they were trained on bigger and bigger corpuses. Uh, and that seemed to have taken us really, really far, which is, um, which is quite impressive. But there's a debate uh, be- between experts in, in, in AI uh, as to whether scale alone is going to, um, to help us reach the, ne- the next level, or really what you need is structural changes in the way those models um, work. And that I, I'm not enough of an expert to, yeah. to tell you which one of the two is going to work. But, um, but that's, it seems that even um, amongst AI experts, there's, there's a lot of debate about um, which of those, those two directions is likely to be the right direction to go towards. Yeah, I mean, it's a really, really exciting and fascinating uh, emerged it's in, yeah, AI has been talked about for the last 30 years that I can remember and all of a sudden it's relevant in everyday life and we're using it in our business let's just turn now to um, your other big interest which is organisational design and whether or not you're deploying AI in your work there, but um, also the big topic for uh, lots of businesses and lots of leaders is hybrid working and the, the profound changes that have happened really post-COVID. I'd be really interested in your thoughts and on those subjects. Yeah, so I think, I mean, in terms of um, organizational design, and our organization structure themselves to to do to achieve their goals. Um, I think the hybrid working on the one side and the te- technological change, and specifically at the moment AI, are two things that will, if organizations haven't started thinking about it, they're going to be started. They're going to have to start thinking about it fairly soon, um, and there's going to be. I think in the next few years, quite drastic changes in the way we do work, and there's still a lot of open questions. Um, if we if we start with hybrid, there's a lot of open question about how good or bad that is, and and what are situations in which it makes sense to have um, pe- workers, employees who spend more more time remote, uh, and what situations in what situations it makes sense to try to have people in the office. Uh, more often, uh, and there's I think there's there's you know there's good reasons why you want people in the office. There's also good reason why you could want people to work remotely. I mean, the first reason you might want to have people work remotely is that 
if you can reduce your real estate footprint, you can save significant amount of money, especially if you're a large organization. Um, and we're, we're working right now with an organization that um, has an office outside of London and they're downsizing their office, but moving in inside of London. And at the same time, the people working in, in that office will go from working three days to four days in the office to working two days a week in the office. Um, and the, the, one of the reasons they do this is because a better location, is, at least that's their calculation, a better location is more beneficial to them than having more people in the office at any one point in time. Uh, but there are also potential drawbacks for, from having people working remotely. Um, there's a lot of informal, um, informal interaction that happen in, um, in the course of uh, people being in the office. And that, that speaks to one of my other interests, which is social networks uh, and the study of how people interact uh, in the workplace. You lose some of that when people move remotely, right? The serendipitous interaction where you, you discuss a problem with someone that you happen to run into or you walked to their office, uh, that's easier to do and, and easier to, um, it's easier to resolve certain things this way than uh, if you're remotely having to set up a meeting with the person, find a time in their calendar, and then potentially there's that, that leads to delays, etc. Uh, or it leads to certain interactions where you would have discussed a topic not to happen at all because every interaction has to be formalized into we're going to make a meeting, we're going to meet at that time, or you're busy, you will only be able to do that next week, etc. Whereas if you're in the office, you naturally bump into people and have those conversations um, as, they, as, as the opportunity arise. Uh, the question is, how, how beneficial are those informal interactions? And the answer is, of course, it depends. It will depends what kind of work you do. It depends what kind of problem you have to solve um, in your organization. And so there's not a one size fits all answer. And I think depending on your organization, it might be that the, what you do necessitate you to have people in the office almost all the time. But it could also be that what you do would allow you to have quite a lot of flexibility and quite a lot of people working remotely. I think one last thing on, on this topic is, uh, and that's something that um, uh, Peter Capelli, who is a professor at Walton, um, has talked about quite a bit. He's, he talks about, um, he, does, he, he calls it independent contributors. So the more you are an independent contributor, and what he means by that is the more your work is not depending on input from someone else and um, the work of someone else is not depending on your input. One example of this would be university professors in the social sciences who don't have a lab and can write, um, for example, a scientific paper almost from scratch on their own. Um, in, those con in that context, you can have people working remotely a lot more easily because you don't have to to rethink the way you manage interfaces, meaning your product passing on from one worker to another, your product or your service. Okay, so I'm trying to, 
you've used a very specific example, which is a, a university professor. If we were to take uh, the street we're on, which is full of lawyers, they're obviously, they've got a client, they may have a team, they've got third parties they've got to deal with. But on the other hand, we know, well, I know anecdotally, that, they, that they've got a lot of remote working now. Mm. But I think, I mean, professional services firms more generally, not just lawyers, but also consultants, your consulting team that's working on a specific project is almost an independent entity, right? They don't need to be in the office of the consulting firm um, to do their work. In fact, most of the time, they, they're, they tend yeah. to spend more time with the client. And then depending on the client, you, you will have the, wall, the broad scope of, the, of situations, right? Between you need to be in the office of that client every day in order for the work to get done to, in fact, you don't really need to be there that often. It will also probably depend for those professional service firm of how much hybridity the client is doing themselves, right? If a firm is, is very heavy on hybrid working, they probably uh, won't be wanting their consultant or the, the, the lawyers they work with to be on their premises that often. Just, I mean, just on the, one of the concerns I know a lot of business owners have around hybrid working is how do you keep the internal relationships going, the, sort of the culture going? Uh, now, I, I suppose the second part of that is well, do you need to, or does the culture has has uh, COVID and its impacts changed for a lot of businesses the working culture forever? Well, I think that's a very good question, and I don't think there's a simple answer. But I think you're right. One of the difficulty with hybrid working is, um, and one thing is the culture of the organisation. One thing is the socialisation of people that are coming into the firm and starting in junior or less junior positions. But what happens when everyone's on, on site is that new um, employees are learning the ropes from existing employees that they just rub shoulders with. Uh, and if you're working remote a significant portion of the time, this is less likely to happen. And potentially that could, for example, lead to higher turnover, which wouldn't be desirable. So possibly that means organization would have to think more explicitly about how that socialization happened and how you pass on the culture of the organization to um, the new entrant into the firm. And so there's, there's a lot of questions there that, um, that I don't think are, have a, a straightforward yes, no answer and what can we do to to keep the culture. But I think what is true is that organization will need to think more explicitly about what is important is in what they call the organizational culture and how they can ensure that whatever mix of hybrid and in-person they're having, they're doing what's needed to keep it, um, to keep it going. Um, but I think the, the other, uh, on, on the flip side, that requires works in, for um, leadership of organization, the leadership of organizations to figure out what it is they really mean by organizational culture. Because in some cases, we, you know, we use the word to mean something a bit vague, but we're not really sure 
what value we get from this and um, what are the crucial part of it. And I think thinking about this explicitly then can give you some ideas of what you need to work into preserving and what is maybe less important. And to, to um, finish circling into your last point, as COVID probably changed uh, the way we work uh, forever, well, forever is a long time, but it seems that it has had an effect that is enduring because we, when we exited the lockdowns in, in a lot of, of, um, of countries, there was a feeling that we would go back in person and that hasn't happened, right? The amount of hybrid working has remained a lot higher than it was before the pandemic. And it doesn't look like we're going back to a pre-pandemic level of, of, of working in person. So I think it will definitely have long-lasting effect. It's already having long-lasting effect. Um, whether that will continue, I, I don't know. But well, Antoine, I hope your research has given us the answer because it's 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 a conundrum that uh, I know many business owners are wrestling with and worry about. But Antoine, that's been a tremendous uh, discussion. Thank you very much for coming in. And all we've got to say is say bye to our viewers. Bye, see you on the next one. Thank you.